Father, I thank you so much for this passage of scripture. I thank you for um, the things that, that you want us to learn from it. And I pray, Father, that um, through your spirit, Lord, that we would worship you today as we get into your word, um, that, that you would, like only you can do, work in the hearts of the people that are here today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're in Acts chapter, uh, well, 10 and 11. Flip to 11 first. Last Sunday, we, we looked at this monumental shift or change that had happened in God's plan of redemption. Um, actually, uh, God's plan of redemption has been set in motion from the start, but, but man got to see this giant shift in God's plan as the gospel was now open to the Gentiles uh, or non-Jewish people. Prior to this time, the way it kind of looked was you had God's people Israel and Gentiles could come, but, but now what you're seeing is that God's people are going out to them. And so it really is a giant shift in the way things were ordered. Um, for this to happen, God had to do some major reprogramming in the church's current way of thinking. And he used Peter to accomplish that. You know, when we're reading through the book of Acts, sometimes you don't think about how much time has passed. And, and really, this story of Peter and Cornelius is probably about 10 years down the road since the church started, somewhere in that area. So when you're reading it, you know, it seems like it might be a few weeks, but a lot of time has passed. And a lot of, you know, the church has kind of been established. I think about we've been going for like eight years now, and we've established a lot of traditions and patterns and things like that. So some of this stuff in the new church was already ingrained. They'd been doing things. They were kind of in a in a groove, and now God's kind of throwing him a curveball. And as I said, he used Peter to accomplish this. But first God had to show Peter that he had the power to take things that are unclean and make them clean. And that's kind of what we looked at last week, that the Gentiles had always been considered unclean by the Jews. But because of the cross, both Jews and Gentiles can be made spotless before God. And it also erases the distinction between the two. That's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. Galatians 3, verse 26 says it this way. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God in his amazing grace has grafted us in to his family and also to the promises that he made through Abraham to his people. Now, um, I'm going to go about this in kind of a weird way this morning, and, and I know you're thinking we wouldn't expect anything less from you. Um, but by way of kind of recapping what we covered last week is not all of you. It's Memorial Day weekend, so we have more people here visiting than we have our regular people here, I think, right now. Uh, so by way of recapping, I'm going to... Um, we're going to start in chapter 11, and basically chapter 11 is when Peter has to go back and tell the Jerusalem church what happened, because when word got out that Peter was cavorting with Gentiles, uh, he had some splaining to do. <laughs> so as you might imagine, they weren't, they weren't aware of this new program, you know, and so Peter has to make them aware of it. So uh, we're going to read verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 to kind of get our bearings. This is the recap of what took place in chapter 10, and then we'll jump back to chapter 10. It's going to work, all right? <laughs> You'll see. Okay, Acts 11, chapter 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? The circumcision party, that's Jews. 
the uncircumcision party is Gentiles. It's a weird way of saying it, but that's how they viewed it. So when you when you hear that, Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, same thing. You see the problem here, though. They they basically they don't know that God has knocked this wall down. They don't they don't understand that this wall has been removed. So in their minds, Peter's done something that was wrong here. Peter had just watched God tear down the wall, but they weren't aware of any of that. And you would hope that they would be kind of happy to hear that, hey, these some people came to know Christ. Um, and instead they're focused on you ate with them. You you went into their home and you had you had a meal with these people. You know, that's kind of sad, but but that's that's what's going on here. So Peter's going to break this the whole thing down for him. Starting in verse four, it says Peter began to ex- and he explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and it was all drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, Uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Um, What you don't know from the story from last week is that the six men that are with him are Jewish friends of Peter's that that went on this trip with him to go visit a man named Cornelius. That's whose house they're about to go into. Cornelius was a Roman officer. Uh, We're told in in chapter 10 that he was a devout man. He believed in the God of the Jews, and, and he did things like give you know, uh, alms to the poor and things like that. So this is the house that he's going into. So it says he entered the man's house and verse 13 says, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that gets us up to speed from where we left off last week. Peter's been called to this guy named Cornelius' house by God. When he arrives, he discovers that God has also visited Cornelius and given him a vision that coincides with Peter's vision. So he knows that this is all of God. He understands that God's like approved this visit to a Gentile man's house. And lastly, he finds out the reason God wanted him to come was to give this message that would open a door for this man and his family to be saved and to have a relationship with God. This is a pretty important visit that Peter's he's on. And he also understands this vision now of this sheet coming down. What it really meant had nothing to do really with food so much as it did people that God had made clean because of Jesus' work on the cross or could make clean. So we're going to flip back now to verse 34 of chapter 10 and pick up kind of where we ended last week with Peter delivering this message that God had for them. As he stands in Cornelius' house, surrounded by all of his Gentile friends and family, because Cornelius, when he found out that somebody was going to come and visit, he, he, he brought everybody he could that come and hear this message. Verse 34 says, Peter opens his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. If you recall from last week, um, even though Cornelius was a Roman soldier, he had this, this fear of God, which is unusual. And so what Peter says here sounds kind of kind of weird, like if you just fear God and do what's right, 
you know, you're in. Um, that doesn't square with what we teach in the gospel. Uh, and so that's not what this is teaching. It's not saying that a person gets saved just by fearing God and doing what's right, because that would be salvation by works. If that were a possibility for you and I, guess who never needed to come here? <laughs> I mean, there's no reason for Jesus to go to the cross if there's a way for you and I to figure out salvation. That's not what this is teaching. What Peter is recognizing here is that there's no longer this barricade blocking those from other nations from getting to God. People from every race, every culture, every background can now come, but they still must believe the gospel to be saved. And that's exactly what Peter's there to do with this man and, and his, his family and friends. Cornelius knew of God, but he hadn't yet heard the gospel message. You know, it's amazing to me how many people will tell you, I believe in God. Most people seem to say, yeah, I believe in God in, in, in some way, but that doesn't mean they're saved. In order to be saved, a person must enter through Jesus Christ, who is the door. No one comes to the Father except through him. So it's critical for Peter to tell them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So he starts out in verse 36 and says, As for the word that he, God, sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to people, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter just unpacks a lot of information for them. And what does he tell them about Jesus? He tells them about Jesus's baptism, about his ministry of teaching and miracles, about his crucifixion, his resurrection, his great commission that he gave to his followers. And then lastly, his exaltation is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead because he is the sovereign Lord of all. <laughs> that's like, that's a lot. But he covered basically Jesus' baptism to his ascension and, and everything in between in this sermon. It's probably condensed down. Yeah, if, uh, if Peter's like a normal preacher, it's probably like Luke gave us the condensed version of what took place. But he makes it clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the one appointed by God, and that by believing in his name, anyone can have peace with God and receive forgiveness of sins. And he takes time to define things clearly to make sure that they're all talking about the same Jesus. And I appreciate this because a couple things are true. One, you know, we, we can't assume that people know the story of the Bible anymore. It used to be kind of a given that people had an idea of the, of the big story of the Bible and kind of understood these things. Now you don't, you can't assume that any longer. And the other problem we have, unfortunately, is there's a lot of different versions of Jesus out there. But only one of them can save us. So getting this right makes all the difference in the world. And, and I, I want to give you some for instances, but not to demean, you know, other faiths or other religions, but I, I really want to make sure you understand the difference and the distinction. So for instance, Mormons believe in Jesus but their version of Jesus was a created being who became God. That's a different Jesus. 
Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, but they believe he was Michael the Archangel, also a created being. That's a different Jesus. Muslims believe that Jesus was only a great prophet and not God. Different Jesus. Some claim that Jesus was only a great moral teacher, right? But Jesus said, no, I, I am the I am, and I'm equal to the Father. He was much more than just that. Some view him as kind of this kind of a peace-loving, you know, socialist hippie with, you know, <laughs> feathered hair that wore patchouli oil and wore Birkenstocks. That's kind of the picture. I, you know, there's that version of Jesus out there that's this great example for us to follow. That's, that's, that's not who Jesus is exactly. And, and I find that even people who call themselves Christians have wrong views or limiting views of who Jesus is. Some just kind of view him like he's a genie in a bottle that come, comes out just to grant your wishes when you need him. Or that he's kind of a, a butler, a personal butler, just to make sure that you're comfortable and have the things you need when you need him. But I like what, G, what Peter says. Peter says, no, Jesus is Lord of all and the judge of the living and the dead. Everything was created by him and for him. Everything and everyone is subject to him. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus you need to deal with. And as Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I love um, that while Peter is right in the middle of his sermon telling them about Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit does what only he can do. Uh, he kind of interrupts the sermon and causes life to happen right then and there before Peter finishes because verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, I mean, he's mid-sermon. He's just getting, he's rolling. He's about ready to tell them about the prophets and what they were doing. And all of a sudden you see, while Peter was still saying these, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I think that's great. And apparently they'd heard all they needed to hear from Peter and God had done something now and they were like, you know, we believe. And the evidence that they believed was the Holy Spirit fell on them. We've seen this kind of thing happen in the church before where you're preaching the gospel. You know, I, I can even think there were times where it's like, this isn't going great. And, and somebody will come up afterwards with tears streaming down their eyes and saying, I don't know what just happened, but something, something hit me, something affected me, something woke me up. And I think that's exactly what you're seeing here too. And for them to see the Holy Spirit falling on this group of Gentiles, that means that this legitimizes that the gospel was for them too. Verse 45 even acknowledges that. It says, and the believers from these guys that came with Peter, the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So this changes everything. Peter and the group of Christians that were with him that day, they, they know that nothing's the same anymore. Everything has changed right now. They stood there with their jaws dropped as they watched the same thing that happened to them now happening to this group of Gentiles. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to convert to Judaism, right? They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to get kosher. None of that had to happen. They skipped all those steps and got right to the front of the line, like, you know, the fast pass thing when you're standing there watching people just kind of, hey, wait a second. They didn't have to do any of that stuff. And God proved that they were no longer unclean because the Holy Spirit fell on them. You know what happens when the Holy Spirit falls on a person? They become holy. <laughs> they become clean. 
Now, some confusion has come from what takes place in this passage because there's this idea out there that because the Holy Spirit fell on them and they spoke in tongues, that these are the normal events that should happen when somebody believes in Jesus. Now, the problem with this, of course, is that doesn't happen to the majority of us. It's a problem for me because it didn't happen to me. And, and so does that mean my conversion is not real? And the answer is no, it doesn't. I believe the reason we're seeing these events here, uh, also we saw them in chapter 8 when the Samaritans believed, um, is so that the Jewish Christians could plainly see that their conversions were just as real and legitimate as what happened to, to the people on the day of Pentecost. They're seeing almost identical things happen. And so there's, there's no way that anyone could conclude that the salvation of a non-Jew was subpar to the salvation of a Jewish person. And this is important because I, they would have done it, honestly. They would have said, you know what, yours is a good conversion, but ours, that's the real good one. You know, that's the kind of stuff we do. And by seeing this take place, it just levels the playing field. It's, it's the same thing, and they needed to know this. Peter was certainly convinced that it was the real deal because he's like, we need to wait. there's no reason to withhold water, right? Let's baptize these people, which is what we're supposed to do, by the way, when you believe. If you believed and haven't been baptized, again, please get baptized. We just baptized, I think, 11 people a couple of weeks ago. You know what? If we missed one, we'll do another one. We don't have to wait, you know, to do it once a year in the summer at Ron's house. We can do one next week. We can do one at the, at the picnic. So please let us know if you want to get baptized. We would love to do that. So this kind of puts us back to where we began this morning with Peter now having to report all that happened to the church in Jerusalem. He has to go there and give an account because they don't like what they've heard. So they bring Peter in. He tells them all the stuff that we'd already read. And I love the conclusion that we read about in verse 17, where Peter says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Peter's right. I can't stop. I can't stop this from happening. Was I supposed to like lunge, you know, block the Holy Spirit from coming in? No, this is something God did and I couldn't stop it. God did it. Verse 18 says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's such a beautiful phrase. That's like a that's like a sermon verse. I mean, you could just go into that right there. God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love that picture. I mean, you picture somebody that's walking towards death, right? And then God kind of does this thing and turns them around so that now they're walking towards life. I hope that that's happened to every person in this room. Okay, so that's the account of how the gospel came to the Gentiles and this big shift that's occurred in the church. And now we want to pull a few principles out from the text. Honestly, I preached this text last week, so it's really difficult to, to preach the same basic, you know, I don't know how it works that way, but it starts in 10.1, it goes to 11.20, so, so you don't get the same sermon, even though you weren't here. Uh, you can go back and listen to that one online, or I could have preached the same one, but uh, here's the things that I saw in this that we want to focus on. The first one is this, leaders need to be accountable. The second one is that Christians need to be careful about jumping to conclusions. And the third one is we must not rebuild what God has torn down. So the first point is, is just simply this. Leaders need to be accountable. When the church heard that Peter may have been involved in something that sounded a little sketchy, they questioned him. He didn't get a pass because he was Peter. Just because you're you know, a leader, or in, in his case, a capital A apostle. 
And that's a pretty big deal. You know, if you've got a business card that says that, you're kind of at the top of the, the food chain in the church maybe. And, and that doesn't mean he got a pass. He wasn't above being questioned for his actions. Too many people seem to be afraid to respectfully confront a church leader when it appears that they're in error. And, and I think that there's, there's been a lot of church leaders we've seen kind of bad behavior in for a while that nobody checked, nobody confronted, nobody talked about. Um, pride growing, you know, behavior that's not okay. And, and nobody's, nobody's saying anything. At some point in time, that becomes a problem because leaders are fallible. Uh, we don't always get it right. I can't tell you all the mistakes we've made since starting the church. You know, if it wasn't for the grace of God and his hand upon us, leading us and guiding us and protecting us, you know, I can't even imagine. It's just kind of crazy to think about. God is so good in that regard. But but we make mistakes. And we appreciate those who have been willing to keep us accountable for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our testimony in this community. We need that. If you ever hear something or see something that sounds troubling to you about any of the leaders in this church, anything we teach, you have both the right and the responsibility responsibility to lovingly and respectfully talk to us about it. And notice I said talk to us about it. Don't talk to everybody else about it. I mean, talk to us first. Find out what's going on. And, and then if needed, maybe we do need to bring in other people. But one of the reasons we've structured our leadership the way we have is for this very reason. We have three co-equal pastors that keep each other accountable as well. So if one of us starts to go, you know, go, go a little wonky, the other two can quickly say, what are you doing? And, and that's good. And, and, you know, not that we've gone too wonky, but, but I love the fact that I have two pastors flanking me that are watching me and keeping me accountable. And, and I'm doing the same with them. Pastors are servants, not lords. None of us are above being held accountable. And it's good for us to be held accountable. So the next one then is that Christians need to be careful about jumping to conclusions. Um, you kind of see in this passage, the church was already buzzing about what had taken place with Peter in Caesarea, right? News travels fast. It did then and it still does now. Uh, they've already made assumptions that Peter's gone off the deep end, right? They don't have all the facts, but they've assumed, uh-oh, you know, Peter's, Peter's gone around the bend. You know, the Pharisees did this with Jesus. If you remember back to, you know, Jesus would hang out with, with Jewish people of questionable character, and they would accuse him of sin because they assumed, well, if he's hanging out with them, he must be doing the same things they're doing. They couldn't fathom that Jesus was hanging out with them so that they would repent and turn to God. And you might say, well, of course they did that. They're Pharisees. That's what they do, right? They're the worst. That's how we think of Pharisees. But this was the church that was doing it. To, you know, Born-again believers that were doing it to Peter. I just kind of imagine all the talk that, that was going on in the church, the whispers, you know, have you heard about Peter? Yeah. He's been eating with Gentiles and, and stayed at their house. You know, this kind of, that's the kind of stuff we do. We're prone to this. And it, it's always amazing to me how people can form a full conclusion with only half of a story. We do it all the time. We've had this happen to us as pastors. Uh, one of the things that we do regularly is we go places where sinners hang out. <laughs> we do it on purpose. We go to places where, where there's unbelievers so that we can create gospel interactions with people. 
And there's been times when people have seen us at places that are a little suspect, you know. Uh, Rat Hole used to be one of them, but they closed down, so we don't get to go there anymore. And it's like, the pastors at the door were at Rat Hole. They were standing around outside talking to people. Yeah, we were. It was fantastic. You should have joined us. You know, we had so many gospel interactions there. It was crazy to see people would come out. The buzz would be like, there's pastors out there around the fire pit. And they would come out. And pretty soon, I, I still can't believe it. It's almost like they think we're Catholic priests. They would just start unloading their sins, like right then and there. You know, there's a pastor present. They don't obviously had a little to drink and stuff. But, but all of a sudden, they're just, just opening up their life story to you. You know, I grew up a believer in the church. And then I went off the deep end. And now I'm doing this. And I, you know. And we would just sit there and, and get to know these people, pray with them, lead them to the gospel. They'd always say they were going to come to church. And so that's another funny thing that happens, totally side. But if anybody ever sees us in public that hasn't been in church in a while, that seems like the first thing they say, oh, we'll be at church on Sunday. And it's like, no, you're not. They never come every once in a while. You don't have to say that when you see us. All right. All right. Don't assume the worst when you see something like that going on. You need to find out the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, right? Maybe there's a reason for concern. Maybe there is a reason, right? But maybe there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for what's going on. And we all need to have a little grace when it comes to these things. I, I was recently very guilty of doing this very thing myself. There's a, a famous pastor that you guys have probably heard of named Francis Chan. Uh, he started going to conferences and doing things with people that, uh, I don't know how to say it nicely, whose theology isn't very good. And, uh, and everybody that social media went nuts. Chan has lost it. Chan's he's a heretic, you know, he's, it it was bad. And I remember reading all these things and I got caught up in it and I warned a couple of people Hey, you better be careful with Chan, you know, maybe not want to read his books and listen to his sermons anymore. And then Chan came out with a statement and he said, you know, the reason I'm doing this is because some of their theology isn't great. And I'm hoping that maybe by me going and spending time with them and hanging out with them, that maybe maybe we can correct some of that. Maybe I can have some kind of an influence there. And you hear that and you think, well, that's pretty cool, man. That's that sounds that changes that changes things a lot, doesn't it? Now, does it mean there's no cause for concern? No. It's something we ought to watch and be aware of. But but I felt horrible. I, I made a conclusion with half a story. And the funny thing is that we as pastors do the same thing that Chan's talking about. We, we purposefully befriend other pastors who aren't like us in hopes that maybe we can steer them towards a, a sounder theology and also maybe that, that we might learn something from them. It, it never ceases to amaze me what, what we have to learn from churches that aren't like us. You know, they get some things right. We get some things right. You get together and hang out and you find out, hey, th- this, is a, this is a win-win in a lot of, t- in a lot of ways. That's what happens when you just start talking and walk away. (laughs) I'm on another page now. Always make it a practice to get both sides of a story before you make a judgment, especially if it's your friend or somebody, you know, it, it never fails. You'll hear their side of the story and that's just gospel. You know, there could, there could be no other story at that point, but I'll just, you know, I'm guilty of it too. Have you ever noticed that when somebody tells you their side of the story, it always kind of puts them in the best light, right? That we're, we're prone to that. You always kind of make the other person seem like the bad person and we're the good person. And that's, that's how people tell their side of the story. Always hear the other side of the story before you form a judgment. As soon as Peter was able to tell his side of the story, the church learned that God was behind all of it and that the Gentiles were now an approved part of their mission field. 
The last observation is we cannot re, or don't rebuild what God has torn down. And we talked about this wall that existed that separated Jews from Gentiles. And the gospel obliterated that wall once and for all. I love the way Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, speaking to Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who made the dividing, or who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This is that idea that he took away all those those rules, circumcision, dietary stuff, all these things that existed. He, he took them out of the way, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is good stuff. God has torn down the wall, killed the hostility, and made us one in Christ. He has made one church, not two. Why would we want to undo this? Why would we want to build that wall again? A wall coming down represents freedom. The whole time I was preparing this this sermon, all I could hear was Ronald Reagan. You know, Mr. Gorbachev, I don't do a good Ronald Reagan. You know, tear down this wall. I couldn't help but think of this wall that existed in Germany, you know, that divided these guys. I don't know if you remember in the, you know, the late 80s, 90s when that wall came down, the reaction they had to each other. You know, East German and West German coming together with hugs and songs. And, you know, I didn't even know each other. And they're just coming up and giving each other big hugs and kisses and celebrating because the, this wall came down. You know, nobody at that point was thinking, let's let's put some more brick. Let's back. Let's let's stack this thing back up again. They were happy because it represented freedom. And, and here in the church, what we see is that long, not long after Peter's explanation of all that God had done, we read about Christian Jews who, who start to make circumcision a requirement for salvation for Gentiles. We're going to, you know, as, as you go through the epistles and you start reading, they keep trying to put bricks back on this wall. And not long after Peter's explanation to the church about all that God had done, Peter does it. You can read about it in Galatians 2. He's hanging out with Gentiles. He's eating with them. He's got brothers and sisters in Christ. He's enjoying fellowship with them until the Jews show up, the Jewish Christians. And the minute the Jewish Christians, the circumcision group, as it's called, showed up, guess what Peter does? He's like, you know, he kind of walks away from the Gentile group and starts sticking with the Jewish group. And it says even Barnabas was led astray by his behavior. And so when Paul gets here, again, we need to keep each other accountable as leaders. Paul gets in his face. And he says, no, this is, this is not gospel, Peter. This is anti-gospel. You're adding bricks to the wall again. And, and, and so we, we have ways of, of doing this. The bottom line is we're not supposed to act like Jews or Gentiles. We've been given a better identity. We're Christians who follow Christ. Legalism is alive and well still in the church today. People telling other Christians, in order to be a good Christian, you need to read this Bible. You need to eat this food. You need to drink that. Don't drink that. I mean, we, there's all kinds of these things that we do. And we, we almost, the idea is that if we do these things, we'll be better Christians or somehow maybe more clean. 
because of what Jesus had done. That was kind of the view that, that you had. Well, they need to be circumcised because that'll make them more clean. You know what makes you clean? It ain't you. It's Jesus. No matter what we eat or drink, do or don't do, whether we're circumcised or not or anything else, Christ's blood is what makes us clean. Christians are clean because they're clothed with his righteousness. If we could come up with some of our own, again, he wouldn't need to come. But we can't. We desperately need him for this. So don't create unnecessary obstacles to keep people from getting to Jesus. The wall is down. Jesus has done all the work. Worship your Savior and rejoice daily in what he's done for you. He created, he knocked the wall down so that you could come to God and have a relationship. As Peter pointed out in his sermon to the Cornelius clan, uh, Jesus is either going to be your Savior or your judge. Those are the two choices. When I stand before him, I'm going to stand before him. He's either going to be my Savior or my judge. You're going to bow either way. I just pray that, you know, right now he is Lord of all. He's the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of my life. I hope you'll acknowledge that today and submit to him as your Savior and believe in what he's done for you on the cross. There's this um, this crazy song that we sing. First time I heard it, I didn't like it. It's called Reckless Love. I didn't like it because I don't like the word reckless when it comes to God. It just sounds like God just, you know, knocking things over and, you know, haphazard. And is, and it's like, that's not God. You know, God is purposeful. And, and then I listened to the lyrics one time, and you'll be shocked to know that I got emotional. <laughs> because the, the whole idea of the song is about just God recklessly coming after us, pursuing us because he loves us. And I'll try to read it. And I think I can. I'm not there yet. There's one part of the song that says, there's no shadow you won't light up. And I think about that. You know, some of us are just, we're trying to stay kind of covered in the dark, trying to keep our stuff secret, trying to, and it's keeping us from God. And he says, no, there's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down. No lie you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Father, thank you for the story of, uh, of all that you've done in your plan of redemption to reach the likes of us. Lord, we acknowledge that before you, we are so unclean, so undeserving, so unworthy, and that you would kick down walls and, and, and go to the trouble that you went to by sending Jesus Christ to the cross for sinners. It baffles me every day. And yet it's the truth that gives me hope every day. And so thank you so much that, that Jesus went to the cross in my place and he suffered the death that I deserved so that I could have life. Lord, I believe in that with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe in Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and that that is my hope for salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today that understands or recognizes that you're not yet their Savior, that they would understand that you are going to be their judge, that they would bow their knee today and confess that you are Lord of all. Amen.